Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. In part two of the Business Class interview with Sydney Rittenberg, we turned the conversation to deal making. First, we asked about working with very powerful business and political leaders. Yeah, at the risk of being corny, one of my favorite sayings I used to recite to myself constantly, this above all to thine own self be true, and it must follow as night the day that thou canst not then be false to any man. The advice in Hamlet to to, to Laertes, uh, you, first of all, you have to be able to learn to take power in stride, never to be overawed. He may be the CEO of the world's biggest corporation, but he goes to the bathroom just like you do. You know, he's just a human being like you. So if you deal with him or some of his subordinates, be yourself. Do it as yourself. Dealing with another human being, do not be overawed. Sydney gave us an example. We had this experience in practical life dealing with uh, Maurice Greenberg, the, the, the former czar of uh, AIG. He flew me from Beijing to New York for an interview to decide whether he wanted to retain us as consultants in China for AIG. We were rec- recommended by Henry Kissinger, who was very close to him, but so I was told that I have 20 minutes with the great man, that's it. So they, I, I get in one day, I go to the AIG tower the next. I'm in deep jet lag, and I sit there while he goes through a process of name dropping, one big name after another, how close he was to Kissinger, how close he was to uh, the then director of the CIA. So he's in, and I'm sitting there groggy, and I'm thinking, if I name drop to him, it makes sense. Why is he name dropping to me? So finally, he stops and he says, where are you from? And I said, Charleston, South Carolina. And he said, oh, that's interesting. He said, I was down there not long ago, and I met the chief of police. He's a black man, and he has my name. His name is Greenberg. So I don't know what devil got into me, but I said, Reuben Greenberg. He said, yes. I said, you met Reuben Greenberg? He said, yes. I said, you shook hands with him? He said, yes. So I got up and stuck out my hand. I said, that's the first interesting thing I've heard today. Let me shake hands again. <laughs> so, so he glared at me, and his lawyer that was sitting there turned ghastly white. He glared at me for a minute, and then he went, ha, 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 and we never had any problems. <laughs> so that, that's it. You know, we've always um, dealt with people like people. Of course, you have to respect people, but uh, you never want to be overawed. He's not any better than you are. And I think people appreciate that, people who are powerful people are very well aware that they get flattered and buttered up and bad news gets hidden from them, and they appreciate direct talk. 
business etiquette comes into play, especially in international situations. We asked Sidney for his take. Yeah, well, of course, <clears throat> I would have to mainly talk about China since that's our experience. Um, many of our clients are terribly worried about saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing in China, and unwittingly offending their Chinese talking partner. And we always tell them, don't worry about it, because the Chinese are very good at telling the difference between well-intentioned people who don't know the ground rules and people that look down on them and therefore, you know, defy their etiquette. They know the difference. For example, in China, if you slap somebody on the back, that's a no-no. That's not done. But if you're feeling good and you slap him on the back and he knows that you're well-intentioned, it's no big deal. Or another thing is rapping on the table or slapping the table. That's terrible. That's a challenge in China. But um, again, if they know that you're, you just don't know any better, but you're well-intentioned, it's not going to ruin your deal. The big thing to understand is that it's okay to disagree, completely disagree, but as long as it's done with respect. The real key to business etiquette dealing with China is respect. If you are respectful, you can say whatever you like. It's not going to cause offense. Um, good example of that is Bill Clinton. When he went to China as president, uh, he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with the then Chinese president, Jiang Zemin, on national Chinese TV and totally disagreed with him about the attitude towards the Dalai Lama about the treatment of the students in 1989, but he did it with great respect. When he talked about human rights in China, he first talked about the unsolved problems that we have in human rights. He talked about East LA and South Harlem and so on. So it was okay. He was like a brother sharing problems and giving his advice. That, I think that's the first time that I know of that a foreign speaker of any kind, politician, journalist, or anything, had uh, disagreed with the official Chinese position and not have his name darkened by the Chinese press, you know, not been denounced and condemned. They took it in, 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 in good style because he showed respect. Now, on to deal-making. Yeah, well, I'm a known quantity in China, you know. Uh, I was there during the revolution. I worked with them and for them. And I was their guest in prison. <laughs> and then uh, we went into consulting business and we're bringing them business. So I'm a known quantity. So I'm not a problem. We had an interesting case with Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss had negotiated for a year and a half to implement their desire to manufacture uh, 501 genes in China. And they had negotiated for a year and a half 
with a ministry that had nothing to do with the clothing industry, but they didn't realize that. It was the textile industry, nothing to do with clothing. And we told the, um, the international uh, chairman that you're barking up the wrong tree. These are not the right people to talk to them. They didn't believe it. But they took us along with them to Beijing, and all the way, the regional manager on the plane was worrying. We we're going to show up with an outside consultant. They'll be insulted. And I said, Tom, by tomorrow this time, you're going to feel a lot better. So what happened was, all it took, we walked into the room with the Levi's regional manager, and the chief engineer from the Ministry of Textiles immediately made a full confession before we said a word, because <laughs> he saw us. He knew the game was up. He told the Levi's guy, he says, actually, we're not in the closing business, but we would like to get into the closing business by forming a partnership with a big-name brand like Levi's. That's why we've been talking. So we had a nice lunch together, and we parted friends, and that was it. But all they had to do was to see our faces. They knew that they couldn't keep it up. <laughs> Sidney described his deal-making philosophy and his most important deals. I think it was successfully negotiating the first Intel fab in China. We started a whole chain of them. Uh, and, they, you know, that was instructive. After it, negotiating about three days, headed by the he was the second number two man at Intel, later number one, uh, Barrett. And um, after the third day, the contract signed. So we're walking over to the restaurant to celebrate. And he asks the uh, head man from the Chinese Ministry of Electronics, there was the other, he said, We've been talking for years without getting any place. How did this happen so suddenly? And the guy pointed at me and said, when I sit in the room with this man, I feel like I'm sitting with my own history. So this kind of mystique. But that's not really, the reason is that we really managed to negotiate around the shoals. One of the main obstacles at the end was Intel wanted written into the contract that um, at the end of 10 years, they would renegotiate whether to continue the joint venture or to make it a wholly owned. And the Chinese wouldn't accept that. They wanted a long-term wholly owned. So during the break, we talked to the Chinese chief negotiator and we said, look, maybe after 10 years, you have your own other ideas. Maybe you want to be wholly owned or you want to partner with somebody else. Why should you lock yourself in? And he said, hey, that's right. So they accepted it. <laughs> Very easy. I'll tell you the truth. Most of the negotiating that we do uses ideas that a 10-year-old child could understand. Nothing complicated. Very simple issues of how to relate to other people. Another example, another big win, was with uh, Hughes Aircraft. Hughes Aircraft 
had just gotten the Chinese to launch one of their satellites. And the Chinese rocket had exploded, so everything was kaput. So they got together in China and signed an agreement that neither side would talk to their press until the investigation had showed who to blame. Both sides violated the agreement. They both leaked to their press and both shouted at the other side. Okay. So at that point, Steve Croft, I think his name was, who later became CEO of Hughes, he was the head of the satellite department. So I went down to L.A., and he's there. He's very angry. He said, I invited the Chinese minister of, of avionics to come over, and we have a joint press conference at which we say that we don't know who's to blame. The insurance companies are investigating. But the minister said he would only agree to come if I agree to negotiate the contract for the next launch while he's here. He says, and I'm not going to be, he says, I'm tired of being pushed around by the Chinese. He says, I'm angry. <laughs> so I said, you're angry, he's angry. When you're angry, you're an individual or a company. When he's angry, he's a country. You know, it's not the same. Well, he says, okay, so I'll invite him to come, but I'm not going to agree to renegotiate a contract. So I asked him, I said, look, suppose you want to go on a fishing trip to Montana with the boys, but you have to get your wife's okay. Are you going to ask her permission when she's angry at you, or are you going to have her in a good mood first before you, you get her okay? Okay, he tells his secretary, he says, so we'll invite the minister. I mean, an eight-year-old child could have said that. It's no, it's no big business professionalism. And I think that's an important point for these guys to get, really. Business class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite. On the next Business Class podcast, Dick Drobnik interviews Jack Wadsworth, who was responsible for developing Morgan Stanley's Asia franchise, as well as a major part of the firm's global business.